Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio, and today is Monday, August the 28th, 2023, and Dr. Tim asked me to play one more recording. He plans on being live tomorrow. He's doing very well. He just has a physical therapy session today, and he um, figures that it might run over and he wouldn't be on time, so he asked me to play a show, but he is doing very well. So the one that he asked me to play is an interview he did with Richard Moss. Enjoy. And I generally like to just start out with a question like, can you tell us how you got into the work you do and what drives your passion for it? And then we just let a conversation happen. Sure. Sure. How did I get into this work? (laughs) You know, synchronicity, things that happen that you don't expect to happen that are like the breadcrumbs into the labyrinths and so forth. You know, or the, so I, I studied medicine. I went to medical school in New York City. Then I, I was coming out for my internship, and we were so driving cross-country with all I owned, which was next to nothing, in a rented van. A man joins us at our campsite. He's not wearing very much, bearded guy. And when, when I, I was traveling with two friends, two women, and they, they went to sleep, we had a, like a bed rolled out in the side of the van. And he just said to me, you know, of course, why, what the purpose of life is. And I went, what? No. And he said, well, it's really to learn to love. And then he told me that he had, was a member of this, a Sufi order and had been a Sufi for a long time. What was so strange was that uh, it was dark of night and he walked up with firewood and I never did see the car. And then he went back to his car, apparently. And uh, then I got into my internship. Uh, no, I finished the internship. Then I was in my residency, starting out in the psychiatry residency. And I heard two of the older residents talking about a new meeting of sought seekers after truth. And I went, oh, I'm interested. It was a longer conversation with that gentleman at the campfire. And so I met Claudio Naranjo and who was a psychologist from Chile, and this was the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was on a path. I began to learn to meditate and other things, and that path kept unfolding. I got introduced to the people at the Los Angeles Center for the Healing Arts, which were a pioneering group of uh, Jungian analysts and psychiatrists, and they were trying to, they knew, knew how little we really knew about illness and cancer, and and what's typically called the mind-body connection. Well, long story short, 
I started deeper on a path that eventually took me out of medicine. I had an experience that changed me utterly, at least to, it showed me that there's a dimension of reality that we don't usually explore. And that was when I was 30. And then I began to do this, with what I've been doing now, which is sitting with people in groups, primarily in groups. In fact, COVID has, for the first time, really changed my focus from groups to individuals and couples. And so the essence of what changed in me, in the language I would use now, is that where we suffer and where all people suffer is within a structure that we call me or I or, or self with a little s. And, and in that structure, which a baby's not born with, which is why I think Jesus says you have to be like a little child, I don't think he's talking about just innocence. And I think he's talking about there's still no, you know, the baby hears, but there's no hearer. It sees, but there's no seer. And it takes seven, eight, nine, ten years of development before that self-system is really consolidated. And in that miraculous first eight years, let's say nine years, we manage to overcome the traumas, the bad mirroring, the the pain of our parents, the failures of their relationships. And it's always a, a spectrum from really the best that you could hope from parents to really some pretty hideous circumstances. But we managed to become me. We managed to become I, and that self-system dominates us for the rest of our lives. And within that, there's a thing we could call the ego. And, and for me, the ego is typically meant by mind-body. The mental thinking processes, like our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about others, the nature of what we select from the past, from our memory, to justify our present moment emotional reaction or something. See, I don't really think at the level of me or I, we have a past. We have the past that serves our anger or the past that serves our happiness. We select whatever memory supports the mood or the emotional reaction or the in the present moment. And that's what the mandala of being was about. It was about that this mental emotional link, mental emotional link, is what dominates people. It's the source of suffering. You don't suffer because you have physical pain or you're getting old. You suffer because you say, I hate this or I don't want this. Or, or you talk about yourself in the negative. I'm not good enough. And, and these are all thoughts. Uh, I'm a failure. I didn't try hard enough. You know, you failed me. You know, the blame cycle. These are all thoughts. And every one of those thoughts simultaneously, instantaneously creates an emotion, anger hope, resentment, bitterness. And, and that's what we see in our world. We see people in these structures and they have awareness within their structure, the awareness to improve themselves in athleticism or playing the piano or anything else. The, the awareness to join a particular group and be in service to that. I mean, it, our awareness is enormous of everything from, I mean, look at what we've created from music to architecture to science but we usually don't get into a deeper kind of awareness, an awareness that's really linked to the body in the present moment. And so what, the, way I, the way I language it is, by eight, nine years old, the assemblage point of consciousness is me. And if it never changes, that's as far as we go. But there is a possibility of a transformation, a true change that's profoundly healing, 
And that moves the assemblage point of consciousness to awareness. So for me, consciousness is a relationship. This is what we do, my wife and I, and for many, many years, it's 45, 46 years for me now, with the, since I was 30, uh, well, 44 years, but I was dabbling already before I was 30 and just sitting with people and, and shifting from conversation at the level of the ego to the possibility of relationship, a relationship with fear, as opposed to all the thoughts about it, all the planning to be safe, a relationship to loneliness, instead of I'm all the thoughts that reinforce that, a relationship to sensation. So that kind of awareness, when the assemblage point is capital A awareness or capital C consciousness, is always in the present moment. And so it's not in time and it doesn't have an agenda. Whereas as a me, as Richard functioning at that level, assemblage point me, our consciousness, our, our awareness is always strategic. We do things to get a result. And if we, so, you know, if we talk about self-awareness practices, mindfulness, meditation, people will say, I had a bad meditation. But that means they're in the past remembering an experience they didn't like. Or they say, oh, it was so wonderful, I went deep. That means they had a pleasant experience they do like, which is going to set them up for saying in the future, oh, this wasn't a particularly good meditation. But if consciousness is truly a relationship, if we can teach ourselves that, if we can dig deep enough and say, wait a minute, I say it sometimes this way because it surprises people. What are the feelings that have never felt safe in you? Has fear ever felt safe in you? Have you ever felt anger without thinking? Is it possible to be angry without first thinking? And what's underneath anger if anger happens a lot in your life? What's underneath fear if fear happens a lot in your life? Is there maybe something deeper? And what if we made those deeper feelings safe in us? How could I possibly do that? Well, you learn in the present moment to come into your body and start to recognize what you feel and you begin to learn to hold it with compassion and love. And those words are misleading in a way. They're, they're pointers. What I say is, you'll see my bandaged hand. I just had surgery yesterday for carpal tunnel. I say, in the present moment, how you're presencing, how you touch, what you're experiencing determines what you're experiencing. So if you don't like what someone's saying to you, right, in that moment, if you don't like it, you're going to fight or withdraw. You're going to react. You're going to judge. If you can sit there and wait, oh, that person just caused me to feel this. That's so interesting. I know that feeling. And you take responsibility for the feeling activated by another, that other person in you, activated in you, not by the other person. See, the self-system at me says, you make me feel this way or you do this to me. That's a, a rough, very rough outline of 45 years of growth and change and working with people and, and living my own path. I truly know that I'm not Richard in the, in the sense of me and that I am in a functional and in the world sense. I, I truly know that I'm the relationship with my experience. And, and how I touch loneliness is how I experience it, how I hold fear. How do you make fear safe in you? Well, because you, you'd say... Fear makes me feel unsafe or terrified. And I'd say, you're absolutely right. At the level of me and the self-system, that's what fear does. But what about fear itself? What is fear? 
You know, it's certainly our first teacher of survival. Look at all the animals. They're alert, they're alert, they're alert, you know. And, but it doesn't serve us now, fear. One of the things that I saw in your work is this clear distinction between, so, so many of us when we're talking, dealing with other people, we interchange the idea of the word or the thought feeling and the thoughts about emotion. They're the same. My feelings and my emotions are the same for a lot of people. And you try to draw a clear distinction between those two, whereas um, emotion relates to the, uh, the effect that I feel when I put, I experience when I put thoughts to these energy flows, right? Can you say a little bit more about that, how you distinguish between this, this word feeling and this word emotion? Yeah. Simply, in the way that I'm making the distinction, Emotion is the feeling of the sensation caused by a thought or a reaction to a perception. But feeling is a mode of consciousness that's quite distinct from thinking. So this constant looping between the mental and the emotional, constant. When a person finds themselves sitting and you know, looking at the ceiling at night and just rehashing something over and over again, I know that what they're doing is, you know, that's creating anxiety or that's creating fear, that's creating sleeplessness, and then they'll have stories about sleeplessness. But what I know is that underneath that is a feeling that hasn't been met, and it's trying to come forward. Often in the middle of the night's a great time for that because we're, we're, we tend to be more vulnerable. So feeling as a mode of consciousness gives you information in the present moment. It's very interesting that the Buddha basically said consciousness for human being is sensation. In other words, consciousness isn't an abstract consciousness, an uh, abstract word. For me, consciousness is a relationship. It's, it's a ceaseless interaction relationship. And that relationship is occurring in the present moment. At that level, waves could happen. Uh, a woman contacted me some months after her son committed suicide. She had worked with me for number of years she'd been in what I call a mentoring program where I take small relatively small groups of people a dozen to 20 16 people for seven days twice a year for three years which is long enough to be with any teacher and we worked a lot on her her son and his troubles and her stories about her son her stories about herself as a failed mother her stories about her husband as not showing up her stories as about the institutions, you know, the, that are supposed to help at the schools and the social, that, you know, they all, so she lived in the anger of that. And she lived in the, the judgment and the anger all the time. And we worked and worked and worked until she understood that all of that anger, all of that judgment, all of this, that was the poison. So the emotions poison you, even the ones you like, because they set you on a line for their, their opposite. I mean, people will talk about hope. Hope and fear are parents. They're like heads and tails of a coin. And trust is a very different emotion. Trust is a feeling, a true feeling. I'm in relationship to myself now. I can always be in relationship to myself. Things may get difficult in the future, but things have been difficult before. And I've always been able to be present in myself. So trust is, or faith, if you will, God doesn't abandon us. The reality is profound and deep, and love doesn't abandon us. And we find our way to that, and then we have faith that wherever we are in the future, no matter what happens, I still have that relationship with Source, or I still have that relationship with myself. 
So to me, things like trust and forgiveness and humility and compassion, those are true feelings that emerge from getting more and more grounded in our bodies and present, whereas he doesn't love me, anger, or he doesn't love me, sadness. I should do something. I should leave, fear. He doesn't love me. He should love me. I'm not good enough. I've had people, women in particular, that are so incredibly high-functioning and very successful, but deep down they have this core belief they're not good enough. And I always say to them, and what does that create? And they said, well, it's, you know, makes me heavy. It makes me work harder. It drives me to keep, you know, keep doing better. And but, on, on, but what's the feeling? What's the actual feeling that's underneath the belief you're not you're not good enough? Because it's just a judgment. You're not good enough. So feelings are like the language of the present moment. They're like music, ever changing. If you start to feel fear and you open to it, then it becomes vulnerability. And if you stay vulnerable, then you become much more receptive, much more intuitive, and much more heartful. And so there's no bottom to the relationship with these darker, difficult feelings. You go deeper and deeper, and and the deeper you go with the fear, I often say fear is love's ally. If you have two people that are afraid to get closer to each other, that's the limit of how much they can love each other. But if they face the fear and hold the fear, then they'll risk deeper relationship. So love says, you know, fear, I, I mean, fear is what shows you that, that love is worth fighting for, that love is worth working for. You can't bow to fear and have love. You can have a narrow little slice of love for your grandchild or your grandchildren or your own children or some of your children, but you can't. You know, wherever there's fear, that's the threshold of love. Wherever there's distrust, that's the threshold of love. So that differentiation of emotion is always created by thinking, and that's the only way I would think of an emotion. So anger, resentment, bitterness, judgment, hope, self-importance, self-defeat, all of that is mind-made, thought-made. And most of the time, if you can recognize I'm telling myself a story about the other person called he doesn't love me or she doesn't care or on and on, then the moment you realize it's a story and that it's making you unhappy and you relax and come back to your present moment breath, come back to this moment, then you realize that that person is just like you. They're the victims of the emotions created by their thinking. And you you don't have to defend yourself from that person. You can be present with them. They may or may not be people you want to get closer to, but often they're people like your parents or your spouse. And it's a pretty good idea to stop the stories and the emotions. And so with that, you're basically without mentioning the word or describing it, you're basically describing the process of working with the mandala of being, that model you created where this present moment, you know, you call it this focused spaciousness, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that as an experience, but that's the center point. And when I'm in that, there is no story, and there's an entirely different experience of my energetic presence and my safety and if I get into a story about you or me or past or future, then I'm, I'm going to create all those emotions you were just talking about, right? Good, bad, or otherwise. Right. It took me a long time. I guess I started, I became conscious of the notion of the mandala model around 1996. 
because I, I kept asking myself a question, why am I so clear when I'm with a group of people and I'm focusing that group and I'm listening to people and I don't become emotionally engaged? And then I go home and have an argument with my wife, you know, or distance myself or feel judgmental or what am I doing differently? And I just, I would contemplate, what am I doing differently? And that's when, way back, when I went through this experience of fundamental change, I didn't know what was happening to me, but thank God I had studied medicine, so I, and I'd studied some psychiatry. I knew I wasn't, that I wasn't psychotic. I knew it wasn't a seizure. I knew this. And, and, but to center myself, without understanding even that what I was doing, I was sitting there and going, now your mind is in the past remembering how you were. Okay. Now your mind is in the future anticipating that this will never stop and you can't bear it. Now you're judging yourself because you think maybe you're weak or something's wrong. Not, you know, and, and I just kept talking to myself, literally talking to myself out loud or silently, just trying to understand what my mind was doing. So fast forward from 1977 to 1996, why am I different at home with my wife than when I'm working? And suddenly I'm walking around, I've got this beautiful Tibetan carpet on the floor of the gathering space. It's here now, in this place. And it has a mandala in the center, a very simple one. And I'm talking to this group of people about an insight. And I'm standing in the center of the mandala. And they said, when I'm working with you, I'm much closer to the center. Like when I'm rock climbing, like when I'm dancing, like when I'm skiing. You know, I'm in that zone. My mind isn't in time. It's not purposive. It's not strategic. It's just what I'm doing, the inner and the outer, are kind of the same thing. I'm unified. And when I'm teaching, when I'm working, and there's this presence in me, I'm doing that. But I go home and I get into me, Richard the Ego, the historic Richard, with his problems with his mother and all of that. And I'm now judging. So I'm walking around the mandala. I'm walking over to the nine, nine o'clock. If you thought of yourself as sitting right in the dead center of a clock, and to your left is 9 o'clock, and to your right is 3 o'clock, and in front of you is 12 o'clock, behind you is 6 o'clock. When you're in those moments of flow, like I was just describing, you're in the center, right? You're not in stories about yourself. But, you know, if you're going down a fairly challenging ski slope, and you suddenly say, boy, I'm really doing great, here, you know, then here, suddenly just the thought is, here comes the ground. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. So just to give people the experience, you just imagine you're sitting in the center of a circle and you've chosen to come into the present moment where you're really aware of your breath, you're in your body, you've stepped out of time, and to your left over at 9 o'clock are all the ways you judge yourself, positively or negatively, all the ways you inflate yourself or deflate yourself. I'm better than him. I'm not as good as she is. You know, I'm not smart enough. I'm the, you know, I deserve more. All the I, me stuff. It's all over to your left, right? And that's going on in, the, in your ego, in your self-system. But that's how you're in the middle now. Over to your right at 3 o'clock is all the judgments of other people and all the judgments of everything. Like for a, a logger and you're out in the forest, trees are a commodity to be cut down. For an environmentalist, Trees are a precious resource to be protected and cherished and, and, you know, cared for. So different stories because people have different values and different, you know, 
things that they're doing. And what we know is that a baby isn't born with me, you consciousness, subject, object consciousness, that that takes a long time to develop and stabilize. So we have that notion of subject and object, me, you, and oh my goodness, it's a downpour. (laughs) I can hear it. So behind you are all these things, it's a deep ground of memory. But So I call those the past stories. So that's the positive nostalgia, the negative nostalgia. So I take, for instance, if you're angry at someone, right? And then you, you look into the past and you remember all the things that person did that have gotten you angry before. Or you look into the past and you remember how your father treated your mother or your mother treated your father. And you select from your memory whatever justifies you being angry, right? So now we have me, you, stories in the back. We have this ground of the past. But it's not really memory. I mean, it's memory, but it's psychological memory. And it's constantly changing. And it's being selected. It's not right remembering. It's not, this is the actual situation. Because at the time that memory is imprinted, you have a particular consciousness. And so you imprint it in a certain way. Then we know that those kinds of memories, especially strong emotional memories, are reimagined every time you have them. And they're reimagined according to the mood of the moment. In that sense, there's no true past at the level of the ego. There's just what justifies my anger, my sadness, my fear, my resentment, my bitterness, my neediness. And in front of you at 12 o'clock are all the ways you can imagine the future. But we actually know that nobody can know the future, so that the future is truly imagined. But when we're me, we, we don't actually have a future. What do we imagine? We imagine some form of the past that might be better, and that leads to hope. We imagine some form of the past that could be worse, and that leads to fear. And so hope and fear, we swing between those, and those are the stories in the future. When, and if you look around at the world of people, you go, wait a minute. What? There's, a, there's almost a, a tsunami of fear in our world now. And that leads us to a different subject, which is why are we so susceptible to fear and How does the left brain and right brain and the nervous system really work and other kinds of things. But that aspect of my work that has to do with presencing and being in the body and feeling, the mental emotional process is stories about myself, stories about others, what I'm selecting from the past and how I'm imagining the future. And that creates the present moment activation in your body of fear, anxiety, heaviness, contractedness, hopefulness. But that circle around you, that assemblage point is the consciousness of, of the me that a baby doesn't have, you know, and that then most of us never let go of. And when you look at these epidemics of fear, you realize that if you don't start with really something that's true, your mind will create a rationality for anything. I mean, oh, you, you can you can start from... I mean, what is racism? Blacks are inferior. There there were, you know, intellects arguing, you know, hundreds of years ago, African-Americans. In those days, they were just Africans or black people. They're only good, you know, the slave people and people in Europe. And then, oh, they're only good for labor and having babies. Of course, it's nonsense. But if you start there, then you, you prove, you select the evidence all the time, the way you look at people. And then if you treat them a certain way because of your belief, and then it's just an endless looping of hopeless stupidity. And you're trapped inside of it. And, and you don't have any freedom from it unless 
grace comes along and whacks you on the head, like that song, Amazing Grace. Talk about a little bit more about these two words, focus spaciousness and that center of that conscious awareness of the now. How did you get to the focus spaciousness concept? Well, how do you describe a state? I mean, the problem is language gets to a point where you either have to be in poetry or you you kind of have to be singing or something. But the state of being truly in your body in the present moment with your mind silent, not activated, is a state of precise perception, right? That is, you see colors vividly in a way you hadn't seen them before. You hear sounds vividly in a way that's clearer and more distinct than before. You feel yourself penetrated by the, the natural environment, the natural order. In fact, your body responds to just walking in the forest with a drop in your cortisol levels, your, your stress hormone levels. And, you know, so you're just so awake. Everything's so sharp and clear. And in that sense, focused and precise. But there's no beginning and no end. You know, it's not outside you or inside you. There's no you, really. The witnessing consciousness steps into the background. So when I try to describe the state, as you move away from the me, you, past, future dynamic toward that center, which athletes know to a certain point, you know, when you look at lives of exceptional athletes, you look at the quality of focus that they can have, right? How they can tune everything else out, and yet they can see, I mean, the context in which they're performing, whether it's Tom Brady as a quarterback or, you know, some great golfer like Tiger Woods, you know, everything else is excluded. They're very, very focused, and they're spacious in the context of that activity, but they're not spacious in the context of day-to-day life necessarily. I mean, I don't know them personally, but we all know that. You know, people who function very high in one level, exceptionally high, way, way above the norm, but are so, so limited in other ways. When you really are grounded in the present moment, how do you describe it? So I call it focused spaciousness. Sometimes I call it relaxed readiness because most of the time when people relax, they get sleepy and unfocused, right? But if they're ready, they're on guard, they're, they're tense, right? But what if you were absolutely ready? I mean, kind of the apocryphal image of the master martial artists, you know? I've heard stories where, you know, the great martial artists, when they're judging others, will sometimes see two contestants in front of them who haven't yet moved. They're preparing themselves, but they have, and they'll declare one of them the victor because they felt one of them's mind move. And if the mind moved, you'd lose. You had to move without mind. So how do you move without mind? Well, gymnasts do that. Athletes do that all the time. And in martial arts, you're taking the contemplative meditative world into a martial, physical, athletic domain. And as I said, these are kind of apocryphal stories. But So when I was trying to language what it's like to be focused and spacious, you know, so if we have an audience now and people want to, if they're not driving or something, if they close their eyes and just you take a position in yourself and you say, here am I. I'm at the beginning of myself. Everything, there's only the now, probably the most important, profound insight any human being can have, that there's truly only the now. And what do you experience in the now? You experience your breathing. So as you're breathing in, you just, 
Feel your body breathing, but really feel it. Not, not spectator from your head. Breathe out and just feel the body, that sensation, the coolness in your nostril, the softening in your chest, the softening in your belly. And the next in-breath. And with each out-breath, just keep relaxing without getting sleepy. So there are practices that are at the heart of everything I do that are about cultivating and stabilizing the ability to have a, um, an anchor in the present moment, which is sensation. So, for example, all the trials and tribulations of life, but all the time you were breathing. And when you're thinking about the people you're angry with or you're fearing the outcome of some really disastrous situation and so forth, do you also remember your breathing? Because if you have the anchor of your body breathing in the present moment, you won't get deeply lost in an emotion like fear. You won't go into the future and get lost in distrust and anxiety and terror. So you have to develop an anchor in the present moment in the body. That's the very first step of awareness practice, consciousness practice. And it's not taught in psychiatry. It's not taught in psychology. Though right now we're weaving together the the mindfulness practices, the awareness practices, and in, into our psychological thinking. Those practices, as you're talking about, you, that we can actually get better and better with practice of identifying the thoughts that pull us out of, you know, as you said, if you're in the moment and you're aware of your breathing, you won't go into fear. And then my mind said, yes, unless... Unless I think, oh, my gosh, I can't breathe. And then I pour a lot of thoughts into the sensations and I start to catastrophize it. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned these athletes that are get into the zone and they sink basketball shot after basketball shot and they don't know why. And Or I think of Larry Bird when you were talking about the focus spaciousness because he would go on a basketball court and not look and pass right to his player, who was, you know, inches away from an opponent. And he had that awareness when he was on the court that I think has to be akin to what you're talking about, that we can develop in this now awareness, this now present moment experience. Well, yeah, and it's often called meditation practice or nowadays mindfulness practice or contemplative prayer. But you do, you do have to practice. If you want to stop being afraid and angry, you have to bring yourself into the present moment so that you can see what you're thinking is Yeah, doing. how you're creating the anger or the fear. Yeah. Only you do. Nobody else creates anger or fear in you. I mean, let's say let's, there are people who manipulate fear in other people purposely because it gives them power. But they can't manipulate an awake or aware person. They just simply can't. And the ones who are manipulated and become angry, they want to join with a group of similarly angry people. Or the ones that go to church and create a community of fellowship. You know, that's a, that's a much better community, especially if you can broadly allow people of different religious faiths or different religious sects the same respect you would give to your own people. But you know, that that's sometimes a a step too far. But right now, in historically right now, I we see that social media allows fear to be spread baselessly. 
fact, without factual base. And it's so difficult to step into it. And because you know, whoever's listening to us now, I don't know what they've chosen to believe. I'm astonished at how many people don't want to be vaccinated, even well-educated people. I'm astonished. But then again, I'm a doctor or was a doctor, and I've studied that, and I understand what these the history of vaccines are and the evolution of them. And, but when you go online and it's an experiment, it's, uh, it's mind manipulation, it's this, or, you know, and you realize none of that's true. It, it's also like saying the election was stolen when it wasn't. You know, but more and more, if you see the doubt into people and they listen to their own minds, the only ground they have is the emotion of the belief. And if that ground is anger, then they build a world around anger. If that ground is fear, they build a world around fear. And often people that are angry don't realize that they're actually very, very afraid. And people that move into anger very quickly, there's usually something that's hunting them much deeper a deep sorrow, a deep, deep sadness, or a deep fear, and that that's never been addressed. And unfortunately, it's that level of consciousness where most of us live, where we vote, where we make and pass our laws. It's scary. It's scary because we can lead ourselves to misery collectively, and you can never be safe until whatever inside of you feels unsafe you learn to hold. And you can't do that without an awareness practice. You just can't. Well, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, The Inside Out Healing, and, and I want to mention that people can find you at richardmoss.com, M-O-S-S.com. And when you talk about these very intense feelings, you call them abysmal feelings, and the willingness in your work to go there with people. So it's not just, I'm not looking at the mandala of being or the Richard Moss work for this light stuff. If you've got somebody with a little bit of anxiety or depression, they can go use this work. You're looking at the full experience of us as humans and talking about, you know, what you do with using the same mandala, but, you know, adding a few stop signs here and there to remind me to stop producing thought about this intense feeling or experience and being with it and how more and more, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but you know, this, uh, my stroke of genius, the woman who, uh, yes, Jill Bolte Taylor. Jill Bolte Taylor has been talking lately about the research that says if you will just be with and not fight, push away or grab onto an emotion, it's going to move through you in about 90 seconds in terms of the neurological system and this energy flow. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that came to mind when I was reading your work on, and using the mandala for these more intense feelings. You know, you remind me that I started an anecdote and didn't finish it. I was talking about the woman whose son, son was troubled and all the work she did with me about her anger. Well, she called me and she basically said a couple of months ago, I was driving my car. I got a call that my son had committed suicide. And I had about 30 minutes before I'd get home and the phone would ring and I'd start to have to make plant organizing this and that. And she said, what was so extraordinary in that half hour? And she said, I opened myself to feelings and it was the beginning of opening to them. She said, I would never wish on another human being, but I never for a moment suffered. And she said, because if I'd, I'd done every story, I'd worked with you on every story, every judgment, every form of anger, 
So instead, I could just feel. And so you talk about abysmal feelings. Grief can be incredibly abysmal. But if you don't allow real grief, you'll just go to guilt or you'll go to anger. He didn't do this. They didn't do that. Or I didn't do enough, you know. And once you're in the disguise of guilt and anger, you know, the hiding place of guilt and anger, you're not grieving anymore because grieving is, is one of the most intelligent and essential of all human emotions because it's, it's where we have to allow a constant play. One minute you can be laughing hysterically and really laughing, and the next minute you're sobbing in despair, and it's like 50 different pieces of music are playing inside of you, and you will recognize all of them for a split second, but you can't grab any of them. And this, you know, so Jill Bolte-Taylor is right, it'll pass through you, but grief won't pass through you in 90 seconds. Grief, grief will there are so many reminders, so many things that call you back in memory and mind. And, and both of those those systems, the aware system and the, the me system, they, they overlap and they're working in parallel. But you can learn. You can learn to stop poisoning yourself with your own thinking and you turn toward that simple breathing process I was describing. You make a friendship between your consciousness and the sensation in your body of breathing. They become... And so that link between sensation that's always there and your awareness becomes an anchor in the present moment. And with that anchor, you turn toward the fear. You turn toward the sorrow. You turn toward the darkest despair. And you turn toward it and you touch it softer and softer and softer. How do you touch it? With your breath, with awareness. It's in your body. It's not out there somewhere. You're feeling it. It's there. And if you turn toward it and you just touch it softly, it will become spaciousness. It's, it, most of these deepest and darkest feelings are disguised forms of love. They're condensed forms of spacious consciousness. And you have to keep touching them until they teach you. Everybody wants to control fear, feel better, control sadness, feel... But you learn in the present moment to touch fear, and suddenly you feel spacious and relaxed. And then you go, wait a minute, what happened? And then the next time you try to do the same thing again, that doesn't work. So you realize this sensation called fear or despair will open into spaciousness, will open into love when you learn how to touch it, which means the you that's touching is the problem. So basically fear teaches your self-system how to relax until the fear can relax in you. Then you begin to develop a body of love, which is a living current of love and joy. And it takes years and years for that to happen in you. But you can't fix it with just medication. When things are extreme, you may be able to diminish them enough. But long-term transformation, long-term healing is, is the work of a lifetime. And there's really no end to it. And that experience in the moment is just the movement of life. And to be able to stay open to that rather than try to grab it and hold it or push it away is this touching gently that you're talking about. And it can be taught. I can learn it and I can strengthen my ability to recognize when I'm in the grasping or pushing away or I'm in the open state. Mm-hmm. My wife and I just did a, a three-day, we call it deep work, but it's an introduction to this work. But probably half the time we were guiding some form of meditation. 
some form of internal self-referencing in the body, relaxing, in the body, relaxing, wanting. Because what people don't realize is the self-system is always wanting. It wants to feel better. It wants to understand. It wants to improve. It wants a result, right? But the deeper consciousness is just touching. And if you touch fear wanting, that's like saying to fear, I don't want you this way, but I want you another way, which is like turning to a child and saying, you know, don't be the way you are. You know, and what good does that do? All you do is the child will either suppress itself or, you know, it'll do one of three things. It'll hide from you or it'll fight you or get, you know, angry and rebellious or it will do everything you want and please you. I remember listening to Krishnamurti in a talk saying what we really need to do is embrace our negative emotions the way we would a wounded child. Exactly. As if you were the wisest of grandparents, right? To your own feelings. Yeah. Toward your own feelings, right? You take them like a child that's, that's been terribly wounded you know, and feels deeply unsafe, and you stay with that. You consistently breathe with that inside yourself until that child teaches you what it needs to feel safe. So if it's fear, it teaches you how to touch it, how to presence with it, so that the fear is no longer fear and and then it becomes spaciousness or it becomes openness or it becomes and it, it even can become love almost in an instant sometimes well really in an instant sometimes and how are we going to ever make people safe you, you can't pass enough laws to be to make yourself safe you, you can't blame enough people for a bad world and then think that if you contain those people then you'll be safe and i mean if you can't make yourself safe through a relationship with what you feel, you'll never actually be safe. You know, are you expecting your husband to make you safe or your wife to make you safe or your children to fix your life or your job to fix your life or money to make you safe? All of them can contribute to something good or not good in you, but it's really up to you. You know, it's up to each of us. We're 100% responsible for our reactions. See, that's a path. If the people that are listening to us simply say, okay, well, how do I live this? Then I'll say, you have to decide what your awareness is in service to. In other words, you have to decide why you are here. If you decide that creation itself was an act of love, that as Jesus taught, God is a God of love. If you decide that love is the purpose of why you're here, now your awareness is going to teach you all the ways you stop loving you, you see. And then now you have a purpose. But if you don't have a pole star that you're steering by with your awareness, then you'll steer by the, the shame you feel one moment, the anger you feel another moment, the, the anxiety you feel another moment, the hopefulness you feel another moment. You'll, you'll never. You'll be bouncing all over the place without any anchor in yourself, in, in your body. But when, the moment you say, wait a minute, I'm here to love love. You know, it's kind of, a, to me, less abstract than saying I'm here to love God. You know, or waiting for God's love to fix you. But God's love doesn't fix you unless you turn around and love God. Because how you touch that determines your experience. Right. God's touch. You are the creator of the gods you believe in. 
the attributes of that God, which are your belief, create how you choose to live your life. Other, because other than that, nobody knows any. Nobody has ever known anything about God. So if someone like Jesus, if Buddha, Buddha says, you know, there is no independent origination. Everything is karmic. Everything's related to everything else. And as you get into the present moment sensation, and you look at the myth of the Buddha under the, the tree of life in his part of the world, which is the Bodhi tree, it's everything that came at him, he let it pass through. Everything he came at him, he let it pass through. But in order to let it pass through, he had to re- keep relaxing himself. He had to keep letting go of the me. And when Jesus says, God is love, he's basically saying, okay, now you, you change the purpose of your life, and now your self-awareness is in service to how do I stop love? Well, and what, well, what fear plus self-interest are the absolute... That will stop love every time. Self-interest plus fear. No more love. And the point is, just because as you say it, you know, my mind is going, why is he talking about stopping love? And the point is, if I understand how I'm stopping the flow of these life energies through me and my ability to experience love, then I can choose something else and allow that flow and be in the experience of love and have an experience of myself in the world that's dramatically different. Imagine two people come to make their vows. There's always, usually, most of the time, marriage vows. There's usually someone representing a religion, therefore kind of a, a symbolic connection to God, and you make your vow in front of God. But to me, the vow is not to love that person till death do us part, but to love love with that person, right? You know, because transactions between me and you, I'll love you if you love me, you know. Right now I love you and I can imagine nothing but a wonderful world in the future, but, you know, there's a whole lot of shadow in us, and pretty soon the one you love becomes the source of a whole lot of problems. And so the transactions never work. Not when love is, you know, you have to have a relationship to love itself. So, you know, if you do your vow, you say, okay, I'm promising to use every bit of who I am and my awareness and everything I can learn about myself to love, love with you, right? And now when I see that my mind is dividing me from you, do I want to keep going down that road of divided mind? Because as soon as you divide your mind, then you project division into the world. And you, see and you experience it. it. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, that's antithetical to love. The divided mind is antithetical to love. You, you know, if you divide your mind, what will then happen is you'll end up with your category of people who you feel safe with, but you'll also have the whole category of people you don't feel safe with. So it's, it's, you know, there's no end to warfare at that level. There's no end to the misery of the world at that level. And love is choosing us. Love is always trying to find us. I mean, anyone who's observed their life has seen, boy, love has been seeking for me. I've just gotten in the way with booze or drugs or self-pity or bad habits. And and then when you get out of the way, you, life starts to change. And I'm very aware that when we say these things and we're using words, it sounds so much easier than it is to learn to really love love with fear, you know. To have a partner that can make you feel so wonderful and at the same time make you so scared, you know, or so, and then what does this mean to love love with someone else? What does it mean to want to come back to the center of the mandala and stop the me, you, past and future stories and start again right now? 
I often say to people after our gatherings, retreats, go home and on the mirror in your bathroom and on your refrigerator, everywhere where you say, who I am begins now. If I'm angry, that means I'm telling myself a story. So find out what that story is. If I'm afraid, it means that's a feeling I need to turn to and stop the stories and maybe activating it and see what's really there. It might not be really fear. It might be deep sorrow. Sometimes when you stop the stories that are creating fear, what's underneath is just spaciousness and ease. You just don't know because we protect ourselves from our depths with this mental, emotional, mind-body connection. And that's not the deeper mind-body connection because the deeper, the, the, the big mind and body, that's a body of love. It's, a, it, it's literally a, a current of joy and love in your body. And, all you, you know, it's always there. So the moment you sit down, there it is. You know, when you're doing and you're focused, it's always there, but your attention is somewhere else. And when you make the image of Larry Bird, knowing how to make a pass without looking at the person, or, you know, I used to watch the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, and you could see the energy change. Michael could change the energy field of, his, of, I mean, of the team and of himself in that context. I'm sure that in many other contexts he's struggles with life like everybody else. I, I believe I already had a gambling problem at some point in time. But but he was a remarkably aware and awake person on the court. So was Larry Bird. And sometimes we're better coaches than we are practice, you know, players. In my life, I tried to be a really good coach, but live the path myself every single moment. And have found this path, and now to be 74, and know that there's nothing that ever can come to me in the future that I won't, I just won't, I'll meet it with a yes as best I can every time. So there's nothing ever to be afraid of. And the future is always going to be stolen sooner or later. You'll lose your money, you'll lose your health, someone you love is gone. The future that you imagine, it can be stolen in a blink. So the only thing you have is your relationship to yourself right now. And the deeper that is, the closer you are to everyone else. So it's not this, I'm going to have a relationship with myself, and that's kind of narcissistic right. and exclusive. It's not that at all. Right. This is in that recognition that we're all connected. It's all energy, and just because I can't perceive those energies with my senses doesn't mean they're not there and that I don't live and swim in them. So. Yeah, and you feel, as your, as your mind gets calmer, your body feels those energies. The body is this... this it's the most intelligent part of us, you know, and the feeling and the feeling intelligence is the, the next most intelligence, and the thinking is the least intelligent because it can be led astray by anything. You can build crazy realities with thinking and not believe they're crazy because they seem logical to you. You know, there's so many good ex, you know experiments that demonstrate how crazy our left brain is, the part that's representing with words compared to the, the right brain, which is presencing right now all the time. And I mean, these, we could talk about all these things for long periods of time, but when I sit down with someone, I'm, I'm aware of a lifetime of practice in myself. I'm aware of the kinds of feelings that are pushing people into the thinking they have, the wounds of childhood that they're, they're deeply needing to heal. Because one of the things about the intelligence of who we are is that we will try to resolve conflict and heal all our lives. Somehow we will try. Yeah, we'll try to make sense of it. And I love that you've given people a model in 
at least these two books of yours, The Inside Out Healing and The Mandala of Being, that uh, they can begin to start working with that on their own if they choose. I realize that... That was one of those books. Those books were about, you can do this yourself. If you read these things and think about them and then make it your own practice, it's life-changing. Well, I thank you so much for joining us today and sharing as generously with your time as you have. And I look forward to following your work. And I want to thank you because you're helping, you're giving your time to a good cause. And I feel your clarity and, and heart. And they have a good champion in there. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Do be well. And I will uh, check in with you again in about a year and see if you've got any new projects we should discuss. Sounds good to me. All right. Thank you. So that was an interview that Dr. Tim did with Richard Moss. And uh, uh, for those who weren't on at the very beginning, I did speak with Dr. Tim, and he's doing very well. He just uh, had a physical therapy session, and he was, didn't think that he'd get out of it in time to do today. He plans on being live tomorrow. And so I'm glad that he said even the physical therapists are amazed at how well he's doing. So. We hold the space for his knee to continue to heal, and uh, we appreciate you being with us today. Again, today is Monday, August the 28th, 2023, and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. And... Hopefully by uh, this afternoon, I will have it completed. If you go to our website and click on Our Homegrown Park Progress, I have put a bunch of pictures out there for you to look at from the beginning to the end and uh, see how our progress has gone. Michael and I were really surprised uh, that, you know, we started the first garden in 2019 in the front, and it was just really small. In 2020, we expanded a little and added another really small garden, two in Garden 3. And then in January, February of just this year, we started our pollinator garden. And it is blooming. I was just out there just a second ago and took pictures of about five different butterflies and a bee and and uh, even a, a lightning bug. And I don't think I've ever seen lightning bugs in the daytime uh, drinking on flowers, but Anyway, it's fun to see how it's just going crazy, going wild, and we love it. And so those pictures will be out there by this afternoon, and you'll be able to see those. I'll put a link to it in the notes for today. So Michael will join us here momentarily, and um, I invite you to press 1 and take the conversation in the direction that you would like to see it go. Do you have any questions or comments? Have you been doing wake-up sheets? And I uh, uh, was looking to see if we'd had any questions sent in. The other day we had an awesome email sent, someone who couldn't join us by phone, and had asked some questions. And, and I'm not sure uh, how much further Michael got with the um, autism spectrum, but he talked to her and Susan for a while after the show. And, and it's awesome to develop this community that no matter what you're going through, that you've got support, that you're not alone. And Susan, we appreciate you offering the information and getting us in, getting us in touch with the other lady who's had experience with an autistic child and had some resources to offer. 
and we appreciate that. So, 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And I've just looked, and I don't have any other emails or questions from the app, but we appreciate you being here, and we hope that you will direct this conversation. Let me check with him and see if he's getting on. Okay. So he is dialing in. So what can we do to support you? What can we do to help you? Got her hand up, so I'm going to turn on her microphone. Hello, Susan. Hello, Jean. Hey. I'm glad those two hey. women connected. I trust they did. Um, um, I, get, I sent each one of them the other's information, and I think Michael spoke with, um, I don't know if he spoke with both of them or just one of them, but uh, we have given each one of them the other's information, so hopefully they did, and we appreciate you getting us in touch with that lady. I know Michael wanted to uh, get in touch with her to find out more about her experience with autism and, um, you know. In yeah, and the connection expand. with the Avacyn might be really interesting. Right. It, you know. Yeah. That's really yeah. That opened up <laughs> some, some great conversation on that, you know, how the uh, – like she was mentioning that her child, when he got hot from the outside, that he went into like overload. But running a fever, which is hot from the inside, he was calm. And so perhaps, you know, the Avacyn will be able to help him because it does heat the blood from the inside, not from the outside. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have a whole other situation to just alert people about. Um, okay. This is something very different, but we uh, I've been working with the refugees, as you know, and there was a young man from Congo who got into this country because he, his plane ticket had been paid for by someone who was going to meet him and arrange his papers and take him home with him and work with him. As soon as he got into the country, the sponsor never showed up. And this young man is only French-speaking, does not know any English. And he was on the street, and he decided he would Google resources for not government resources, but churches and so forth, um, find refu- refugee people who will assist. And he found our parish, which runs the refugee center, and he showed up at the door of the secretary just as she was about to leave. She spent two hours on the phone trying to reach the sponsor, who evidently, our rector says this happens more often than you'd like to believe. Someone will bring them here and then just not follow up. I don't know why anybody would do that, but this man was just left high and dry. So they took him out to supper. He was ravenously hungry. They put him in a shelter where he spent a month, and the shelter terminates people. They give you a month to find your bearings, and by the end of the month, 
uh, he had nowhere to go. So he's living with our rector right now, and he's been helping with this sale. But And they've been looking for housing for him, but the housing situation is such that even to get one room in the Allentown, Pennsylvania area costs from $600-$700 for a room with a bathroom down the hall and no kitchen, just a room. And wow. so, And this is so hard for so many people. This is a young father who came over to this country to make enough money to send his children to school and support his wife. They are all in physical danger over there. So here he is, and he's not only unable to help them, but he's going under himself. I'm not really asking for anything. I thought of even putting up a GoFundMe thing, but we're casting around trying to find a situation for him. We've got Michael living with us, so we can't offer him our basement. Um, But he's been, they've hired him at the church to do some yard work, and he's been shoving furniture around for us in this big sale we just did, and it didn't get rid of everything, so we're running it again next week. Um, It's sort of a hybrid, giving most stuff away, and some things very, very inexpensive. But just to say the situation in this country is so hard. Refugees are are being welcomed in more than we're able to provide for them. There aren't systems in place that can keep them from free fall once they get here. So that's just a report. (laughs) But it's so much on my mind that um, I thought I would mention it if anybody has any ideas. Really tough situations, crazy town. We really need to start to understand from the ground up why, you know, why does a room with a bathroom down the hall cost $600? Well, because somebody took a piece of property that was, you know, built for probably $3,000 a hundred years ago, and and then it was sold for 5000 then it was sold for 10000 then it was sold for twenty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred. Now it sells for a million dollars. Where's the million dollars come from? It's a $3,000 house. Where does a million dollars come from? Somebody's got to pay it. It's got to come from somewhere. And most people don't think of, of that when they go, oh, well, I'll just, you know, jack the price, jack the price, jack the price. And sadly, unfortunately, this young man isn't the only person in that situation. Many American young people, men and women, will never see oh, the yeah. Because of the way real mm-hmm. estate is handled in America, you know, it's a it's a profit game. It's a but if there's no value, if there's no wealth behind the profit, then it has to come from somebody's pocket. It's called inflation, and prices go crazy. It's just you know, and it actually is deflation of the purchasing power of a piece of paper that, sadly, back in nineteen what early sixties. A particular politician took off us off the silver and gold standard. Or the gold standard was actually earlier, but the silver standard that had some kept some value behind the money, and now it's just free fall paper. Print as much of it as you want, and what do you have? So you know these are things that we need to understand about how you know this is part of the whole focus of the laws of living course is understanding how this energy system works, and some of the systems we've devised guarantee failure and suffering for millions. 
Mm. But it puts a lot of money in some people's pockets. I know. It's just crazy. Crazy game. Yeah. Yep. Well, we're having the same issue with our middle grandson, my daughter's boy, Jacob. He's terrified for good reason. He says, how can I live unless I'm slinging hamburgers all day long just to pay rent for a room? Meanwhile, I'm not doing what I love doing. And so we've, we've been in Al-Anon, but we've changed our tune with him. When we said, We've said, we will make sure you're not on the street. Do not be nervous. Work with us. I've probably told you this before, but it's, it's given him a little bit of more peace. He, he was having such anxiety about his future that um, he was just not able to focus on his studies. And on another note altogether, I have to say, I mean, there is churchianity, but on the other hand, the, my my parish, I'm so proud of them, and that's what's happening is the parishes are stepping up, some of them. And Absolutely. Making the difference between out on the streetness for somebody like this who... Uh, just have nowhere to go. He he was bright though. He smart. He managed to find a way to find out where we were and came over just in the nick of time, which seems miraculous. I could tell a few other stories, but I'll let you go because this isn't about that. But I just wanted to give a report. I'm with you 100. percent You know, there's churchianity and then there's actual Christianity people who actually function from love and. You know, there's there's a definite difference, and and thank God there's so many people. I mean, if you look globally, you look at how many people a hundred years ago were starving in this world, literally yeah. starving, and those numbers have improved immeasurably because of people who stepped forward and said, "I'm going to do something." So thank God there mm-hmm. are people who are functioning out of that connectedness with love and that directed being directed by love. It's, it's, uh, we'd be in a whole lot worse shape if it weren't there. Yeah. True. So I hear you loud and clear and, uh, join you in holding the space for, You know, critical mass, you know, when when we can hit a critical mass point of people who understand these dynamics, the game is going to change. And the game's got to change. It, it's not sustainable. Got to. Mm. It's definitely wake-up time. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate the compassion and the willingness to serve that you represent in the world, the energy that you carry into the world. It's pretty awesome. Well, you know, Michael, a lot of it comes around to those tools, too. Um, We wouldn't have been able to have someone living with us like this with all the uncertainty and unwellness there it's just a gentle person and everything and he's helped out he hurt his back helping us by the way and so he's really sort of out of commission but that man has been my teacher man oh man because i bump up against my ego and my junk and my preconceived notions about what people should be doing and so forth it's ongoing i think i've done more worksheets <laughs> on that issue 
except for the other issue I've been working on, it's been a real challenge, but it's going all right, which seems miraculous, so thanks. Strength to strength. Here a little, there a little. Yeah, that's what it feels like. That's what it takes. So, Joni, you and carrying it forward. I've got my Avacyn, too. Oh, sweet. <laughs> awesome. Two times in. Well, take so your time far. to build up so you don't create a healing crisis and rock well, and roll. I didn't. I went right to 20 minutes at high. I hope that's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, as long as you, you know... As long as you're not pushing against the healing crisis, that's the only thing. And if you find yourself doing that, just back off a little bit because you don't need to uh, to push that hard. Take take your time. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. What were you saying, Jeannie? I, I wasn't sure you were still there because it was quiet for a moment. And I was just going to say, Susan, if oh. you are on still, we can't hear you. But then you spoke. Oh, yeah, I was on. I just didn't know what to say. Well, any other thoughts for you today? No, I'll I'll listen now. Thanks, Michael. All right, blessings. Do you have another hand up? Well, Miss Jeannie? I believe it's Miss Roma, 808. You're on the air. How are you doing, young lady? Hey, Roma, welcome. How are you? How are things in Maui? Might need to unmute. Hello, Roma. Are you muted, Roma? Hello, Roma. Okay, well, maybe try calling back in again, Roma. In the meantime... We have 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, while Roma's calling back in, I have a poem I'd like to read that I just came across that I thought was really phenomenal. And... um, quite powerful. It was actually, Charlie Chapman was in around the age of 70 when he brought this to the forefront. And it's a poem that was written by a couple named Kim and Allison McMillan. And this is back, you know, I'm not even sure what, uh, what year it was. And he actually read it and it it was I'm going to change just one thing in it because each of the key insights came from or came with the, the the words love myself as I began to love myself and I'm going to update it so that we can let go of the error that many of us made and for decades I made it and talked about how we can love each other and then realized what a what a falsity that is and 
how it puts the mind in a whole false direction. And so at the age of actually 70, Charlie Chapman read this publicly. So I'm substituting for the words, love myself, realize I am loved, in the first line of each paragraph. As I began to realize I am love, I found that the anguish and emotional suffering are only warning signs that I was living against my own truth. Today, I know, this is authenticity. As I began to realize I am love, I understood how much it can offend somebody if I try to force my desires on this person, even though I knew at the time it was not right and the person was not ready for it, even though this person was me. Today, I call that respect. As I began to realize that I am love, I stopped craving for a different life and could see everything that surrounded me was inviting me to grow. Today, I call this maturity. As I began to realize I am love, I understood that any circumstance, and there's actually a word missing there, should be in any circumstance. I'm in the right place at the right time, and everything that happens is exactly happening at the right moment. So I could be calm. Today, I call that self-confidence. As I began to realize I am love, I quit stealing my own time and stopped designing huge projects for the future. Today, I only do what brings me joy and happiness, things I love to do and that make my heart cheer. And I do them my own way and in my own rhythm. Today, I call that simplicity. As I began to realize I am love, I freed myself from anything that is no good for my health. Food, people, things, situations, and everything that drew me down and away from myself. At first, I called this attitude a healthy egoism. Today, I know it is a result of realizing I am love. As I began to realize I am love, I quit trying to always be right. And ever since, I was wrong less of the time. Today I discovered that this is modesty. As I began to realize I am love, I refused to go on living in the past and worrying about the future. Now I only live for the moment where everything is happening. Today, I live each day, day by day, and I call that fulfillment. As I began to recognize myself as love, I recognized that my mind can disturb me and it can make me sick. But as I connected to my heart, my mind became a valuable ally. And today, I call this connection 
the wisdom of the heart. We no longer need to fear arguments, confrontations, or any kind of problems with ourselves or others. Even stars collide, and out of their crashing, the worlds are born. Today, I know this is life. I thought that was something pretty powerful for, and I'm not sure exactly what year that would have been, probably back in the 20s, that um, Charlie Chaplin shared that with his public audience as a man who was known by millions of people. And it, to me, is reminiscent of the conversation we had in our uh, book club, the uh, Hear My Voice book club on A Course in Miracles. We did the final episode of that on A Course in Miracles. The topic, if you look for it in our YouTube channel, if you haven't listened to it, the course topic was the lesson, the name of God is my inheritance. And what it reminds me of is in that particular lesson, Jeannie I had just seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge. And I was struck at how powerful it is when one person chooses to publicly live as a human being, refuses to kowtow to the norm of the day, refuses to support the norm of the day, though in his case, it almost sent him to Leavenworth Prison. And if you're not familiar with the story, I suggest you watch it. Take some worksheets. It's extremely violent. So if you have any sensitivity to violence, it will bring up a lot for you to heal. And I'd support you in healing it, but it's worth watching to watch in the middle of all that violence how one person who said, I am going to function as a human being, how one man as a conscientious objector, as a young man, he had a run-in with his father and almost shot him to death, almost killed his father and swore he'd never touch a gun again. But when the war came along and everybody was signing up, he said, I have to go. But I will not touch a gun. And he stood to his principles. He stuck to them. And he was beaten. You know, he was berated by his superiors. And, and in essence, the superiors gave his fellow, you know, grunts, soldiers, permission to beat on him to try to get him to quit and leave. But at one point in the beatings, he says, or as they're saying, you know, why are you wanting to go to war but you won't touch a gun? He said, among all that killing... I just decided that it wouldn't do any harm if one person were putting some of it back together and he decided to go as a medic. To make a long story short, the bottom line of the film is that will all the tough guys run away from the horrendous bombing that's happening, he stays and rescues 
even the people who beat on him. The difference, I mean, it's such a powerful example in the middle of the worst insanity we could imagine. Far beyond personal conflicts and the average person's, why is this happening to me again? One man changes the world. And as a conscientious objector, he's actually the only human being in American history as a conscientious objector that's gotten the Congressional Medal of Honor because of his valor and his bravery and his willingness to function as a human being. And when I read about Charlie Chaplin sharing this way back when, to me it was a similar act of bravery, certainly not the kind of risks involved with the young man whose true story is told in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. But for Charlie Chaplin to have stepped up and said what he said. Another place where this shows up, if you you can look online and you'll find it on YouTube, if you look at uh, the producer of the movie The Ten Commandments, before the film, it's the only film I've ever seen it happen on. The curtains are closed. It's the opening of the film, so it's a major production in Hollywood. And I'm not remembering the name of the producer. Do you remember his name, Jeannie? famous, well-known back in the early days of film. He stands up in front of the audience and introduces the film with such a courageous monologue for the day that, you know, there are only a few of these events in history that I know of. And what we need are more people who have that kind of courage and are willing to step up to the plate and Apologies. do it differently. Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille, yeah. yeah. Powerful. Sorry, I went Cecil to unmute DeMille, myself Ten Commandments introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Technology, what fun. In any event, Google Cecil B. DeMille introduction to the Ten Commandments and watch that. It's just a two or three minute introduction, but... I mean, he just lays it out. He just says, here's, here's the game. Here's what's, you know. And, and by the way, Susan, it relates to our conversation at the beginning of this show, what DeMille says directly. So we're here to support that kind of courage. We're here to do the best to do things differently. I don't know how many, you know, maybe new to the show, may not know that for 40 years we were on the road, paid our own expenses, our workshop for free. We don't get paid to do this radio show. We pay to do it. Our commitment is to make an understanding of the tools that help people to remove the blocks to the empowerment of their human lives and to bring into expression the truth of who each of us is as a human being. So that's what we're here to do. And we're delighted that you are here to participate in that project with us. And Ms. Sheed, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? It is all quiet. 
So we've got 32 minutes. Oh. Somebody press one. We've got lots of time for conversation. So how can we support you? At the beginning, before uh, you got on, I was mentioning, you know, that we were talking to the young lady Friday about uh, her child that has autism and being able to connect her with the other person right. and some of the insights you got about the difference between being heated from the outside and heated from the inside. And and so I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that conversation. I went out and looked. I don't have any other questions from the app or from email. Right. I'm assuming they connected. Well, we'll hold the space and hope they did and that that whole project moves forward. I know that uh, Michael uh, Tatey had sent me some information forwarded to her, so hopefully we're going to uh, get some openings in the arena of autism and be able to bring different levels of healing into the world from the perspective of truth and what's actually possible for a human being. By the way, one of the things that you might do is, and, and you've spent so much time on it, and it's, I mean, the, the pictures alone are worth spending an hour looking at, but uh, we haven't spoken for a while about the fact that we have uh, here on this property started a, uh, a registered homegrown national park. And we're now up to about 3,500 square feet of gardens. About half of that is native species. And Jeannie went out this morning. She's rewriting for the, uh, our, our webpage hopefully to inspire people to start looking at getting rid of their lawns. We've gotten rid of about, what, what was it, honey, about 1,800 square feet of lawn here. And uh, about uh, two-thirds of that now has 160 or so native species flowers and the multiplication of birds. You know, we, we're at the point where we have to fill our bird feeder more than once a day. It used to be once a week that we had to feed it. We've got so many more birds and uh, all the butterflies, the different critters and creatures that are showing up. It's just, it's just amazing. And um, so, Jeannie, you want to you talk a little bit about that, sweetie? You're on mute again, honey. Okay. Jeannie, I think <laughs> I had talked about that. Well, can you not hear me now? Okay, I can hear you now, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I talked about that at the beginning while I was waiting for you to dial in that I had before, oh, after, cool. during pictures. and um, But it was our, the yard was bigger than that because right now we have over 2,300 square feet just in the pollinator gardens, not counting our three vegetable gardens. <sighs> Okay, I was thinking it was their 1800. Okay, cool, great, sweet. Been hauling leaves and grass and soil and by the ton. I don't know how much soil we we probably created. I don't know 30 tons of soil in the last five years here. And probably. if you look at there's a there's an interesting video out there called We Must Grow. You can look it up free on YouTube and watch it. And uh, what they're pointing out is that we have, on planet Earth, about 60 years of soil left. And soil 
as opposed to dirt. You know, realizing you can't grow food on dirt. What they call commercial farming, you know, most of what shows up in the grocery store are shells of what look like fruits and vegetables or processed things that are in packages that are grown on dirt and hoping to get life from something that you've killed. You know, the first thing that commercial farming does these days in most cases is they pour about 10 gallons of glyphosate on soil to make sure everything in the soil is totally and completely dead. And then they're going to try to get life from it. They're going to try to bring us something forward that we're going to eat and it's going to provide life to us. I mean, it's a silly precept to start with. And these fake things that are nutrition-free and toxified to the max are not food. So one of the things we've been working on is building soil. What's the difference, you say, between soil and dirt? Well, dirt's dead. You know, if you've got a body and it's dead, it's never going to come back to life and it's never going to do anything but, well, it'll feed some critters unless you poison the critters that are going to feed on it and then the thing won't even decay. When you've got soil, there's life in the soil. The soil organisms are there. They're not poisoned by chemicals or toxic sprays. There's life in the soil. builds food that is, has life in it and that supports life. So part and parcel of, uh, of the pollinator gardens is uh, we're, we're blessed in that we're eating more and more out of the garden, out of what we know is soil and what is actually filled with life. And, you know, it's, it's been made, oh, well, life is, uh, we're too busy for that. Well, I understand. But if you're too busy to provide actual food for yourself or support people who are growing actual food by buying from the farmer that's growing the food where you know what it is that you're getting, then what will happen, and I forget who it was that said that people will, you know, spend all of their time to, to make money and then they'll spend, up all of the, uh, spend all of their money trying to regain the health that they lost because they didn't pay attention to their health to begin with. Some of the numbers, just to back up what Jeannie was talking about earlier, Forty-one percent of insect species have gone extinct over the past decade in the world. Now, of course, most people go, or many people who never thought it through go, hooray, boy, I don't like those insects. Well, you know, it may be that you don't like insects, but guess what? If you don't have insects in your world or in your garden, you're dead because there's no food left. They're the root, they're the foundation of life. Carl Sagan had a a saying that he put out there that extinction is the rule. Survival is the exception. And this life-threatening, catastrophic collapse of nature means that the global food supply disappears. Without insects, there's no ecosystem that functions They're pollinators, they maintain health of the soil, they're recyclers of nutrients, and they're 
going extinct eight times faster than that of mammals, birds, and reptiles. One scientific paper on insect extinction threat, the threat of insect extinction says that insect trends confirm that the sixth major extinction event is profoundly impacting all life forms on the planet. And they go on to say in that article, as we change our ways of producing food, insects of a whole <clears throat> will go down the path of extinction within a few decades. The repercussions this will have for the planet's ecosystems and humanity are catastrophic. We need an intense global effort to halt and reverse these trends and bring about diversity in life. So there are many elements that we humans have a big say in. You know, there's no other creature that's going around spraying the deadliest chemicals, chemicals ever in, invented all over the globe. There's a if you uh, if you're on Amazon, there's a video we watched the other night. Toxification and it focuses on India and how many farmers there are committing suicide because the chemical companies came in and said, oh, we're going to increase your productivity with these chemicals, but they've killed the soil, and the farmers can't survive. I mean, thousands and thousands of people committing suicide. Here in America, it's become illegal to collect seeds. I mean, the, one of the most ancient traditions in the farming world is you collect seeds from year to year. Guess what? If you have a farm and the farm next to you uses GMO seeds and there's a drift of that GMO seed to your farm, even though your farm is totally organic and you've never touched, never planted one, the seed patenting companies, which incidentally are companies that brought us things like glyphosate and Agent Orange and Zyklon B that was used in the gas chambers, and they're the companies that are now owning seeds. And they're going into and suing people who've never touched their product because drift from a farm down the road ended up sowing some of that their genes, their patented genes, into this farmer's field. And they're winning in court crazy and there's there's you know as we were talking with Susan in the beginning there's just a, a wide variety of things that need to shift and change from political policies banking credit manipulation agriculture deforestation habitat loss predation by exotic introduced animals and invasive uh, plant species invasive insect species like did you know that your lawn is an invasive species in America? There is no natural grass like people use in lawns today. Consumes billions of gallons of fresh water, and we're at the point in some places in this country where it's almost on the verge of water wars. It takes billions of pounds of chemicals to keep it growing and millions of gallons of gas to keep it trimmed and cut. 
start to get rid of your lawn. Take a piece of it. That's what we've done here. We've just taken, uh, we took one section and we started the second section and, you know, just take a corner and, and start to convert it to something. You know, even if you're, you're in an apartment and, and you put a pot out on the, the balcony with a native species plant, you'll be feeding pollinators. And they'll find it and they'll start to show up. There are certain species of especially pollinators that have co-evolved with one particular plant. And if that plant is gone, that species is gone because it can't lay its eggs, it can't rear its young without that particular plant. So, you know, for pennies, even if all you've got is a balcony, you can participate in making a difference there. So when we look at, you know, what's happened with habitat loss and these introduced species, exploitation by hunters, poachers, pet trade, poisoning of pest animals in the wild, horrendous stuff happening there. The development, the logging, the droughts, the fires, the global warming. I mean, to pretend when we've, what, in the last 10 years, we've had, I don't even remember what the number is, five, six, seven of the hottest years on record ever. I know that here, and I've been sitting back and contemplating whether to, what, what can be done about it, but the electric company is going through and they're just decimating the trees in this city. Oh, they're threatening our power lines. And they're literally, I mean, beautiful stands of trees. They're just decimating, tearing them down. And uh, that means that the city's temperature is going to go up. I mean, it's, and, and few people realize that the source of rain is trees, <laughs> vegetation. That's where the rain comes from. It doesn't come from the sky. It comes from soil right up to pollution from human lighting systems that, that rob us and the animals and insects of their necessary cycles of darkness. We need to be thinking about all of these things and where it's possible to do something, to step up to the plate and do something. The development of a conscious land ethic that, that results in ecologically functional landscapes and the restoration of native plant species habitat. I mean, it's an imperative. Every square foot of lawn that you replace or even the planter on your balcony can make a vital contribution. Industrial-scale intensive agriculture, sterilizing the soil and killing ecosystems and habitat. We need to rebuild soil. So all of these things become part and parcel of doing the work that we're speaking of. The healing of ourselves, each other, and the planet. we look at birds in North America, they're saying that between 1970 and today, there has been a loss of 30% of the bird population. There are 2.9 billion fewer birds in North America than there were in 1970. And they're estimating that there's been a 49% drop in bird species globally. 
and the majority of that is due to human activity. People that are profiting from the human activity, oh, they've got so-called scientists and they've got experts that will raise doubt, will sow enough sophistry in people's minds that people can doubt and forget to do anything or just, you know, not bother. Oh, well, it's not really true. Some figures I came, I found recently with some research I was doing, there are approximately just over 11,000 known bird species. And 159 of those are now extinct. 226 of them are critically endangered. 461 are endangered. 800 different species are vulnerable to extinction. And over 1,000 are right on the cusp of being threatened. And it's accelerating. So if you go to our webpage, go to whyagain.org slash homegrown dash park. Whyagain.org, W-H-Y-Again.org, forward slash homegrown dash park. You'll find the pages that Jeannie's been working on, and uh, she's just really done a lot of work to put it together, and it's really worth spending some time in studying and joining us. Hold the space. I am applying for uh, Virginia has uh, applications for B. They uh, provide you with the B equipment. And so hopefully we've applied for the last two years and haven't gotten it. So I'm trying again. Hopefully this year will work. I just, I was doing some, you know, as a result of some of the conversations we were having, Jeannie, I was doing some, some Googling on bees, and I didn't realize it, but there are 20,000 bee species worldwide and over 4,000 bee species in America. And they don't all live in hives. That's honeybees, and actually the honeybee is an invasive species. <laughs> But the other bees that are pollinators, some of them live in the ground, some of them live in the hollows of trees, all kinds of habitat that are required, and that habitat's being destroyed. So that habitat is needed for bugs, bees, butterflies, ants, and it's they that support bird life and many other Creatures ultimately depend on those insect species, including us. So it's an important topic to, uh, if, if it's your calling, to take a look at it. And, you know, if you've got a lawn, you know, start with just a little 10 by 10 foot square and put some soil on it and put in some native plants. It's awesome. I mean, the colors that you would look at. When you look at the pictures, Jeannie just took a whole other round of pictures. We've got about 160 uh, different plants up there, and uh, I mean the colors, the uh, the beauty of these plants are just amazing. And we're only what eight months out from starting this whole project with the native species. We 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 had grass with about an, an inch of dirt under it, and that sat on dark red and gray clay. Base. The hill that this house that we're in is just total clay. You dig down an inch or two and you're into the clay. 
So we've now yeah, got. We started uh, the end of January uh, with our planning and putting the cardboard down. And, and you know, it doesn't cost. Uh, I mean, like we've picked up the. We have a several furniture stores around here, and you know they get their furniture and their mattresses and things in boxes, and they're huge boxes, and then they just pile them up, and so they let us haul it for free. So we have big cardboard pieces. Then we've got two neighbors that had compost and leaves and things like that that they just gave it to us. So, I mean, a, a lot of it, yeah, we paid for a couple of, of loads of soil and compost, but for the most part, stones, that part such. was free. Yeah. yeah, the stones we paid for. Yeah. And we got off off shaped. I mean, they were not perfect stones. And then we got... Uh, of course, we pay for the plants, but a lot of our plants even, we would drive around and there would be like a field with a ditch and flowers growing out of the ditch, and we would look and see if they were native, and if they were, we would dig them up. And, of course, we left the where we dug them up really nice. I mean, we didn't mess up somebody else's ditch. And uh, then even some doctor's offices and stuff um, said, yeah, we could have starts off of their plants and things like that, so... It doesn't have to cost you a lot to do it. And then, like, yeah, Lowe's, they had a big sale on some of their, like, their grapes. Uh, it was off-season, and they sold them for $5 a plant and things like that. And then we had we're now eating grapes. Starts. Yeah, we're now eating grapes. Yeah. And it's work. That is the one thing. It's work. But, you know, if you're paying for a gym, give up your gym membership and put that money into a, a, a pollinator garden or a food garden and then go yeah, work in I it. Have... The health benefit. I mean, just do some research. I mean, even places like the Cleveland Clinic are saying one of the healthiest things you can do is work in a garden. Get your hands in the soil. And because our property where we have planted these gardens is like 45 degree angle. I mean, it's not flat land. And so it works out your leg muscles <laughs> to go up there and work. I think I've sweated more in the last three months than I have in my life. <laughs> so it definitely works you. Go to YouTube and look up, or you'll, there are links uh, that Jane's put in the website, but go to YouTube. There's a gentleman named Dr. Doug Tallamy, T-A-L-L-A-M-Y. And he's talking about, he's set up a thing where you can register your own national park. And he's calling it Homegrown National Parks. And he's, as a an educator, presenting this as a solution. He's the one who really turned us on to it and educated us about it. And so you can go watch his YouTube videos. And he talks about just this whole field and what's happening. One of the things he says, quote from him is, in the past we've asked one thing of our gardens, and that is that they be pretty. Now they have to support life, sequester carbon, feed pollinators, nurtured birds, and manage water. Floods, the floods that are happening all over the place with a properly managed soil environment will hold tens of thousands of gallons of water. Whereas when the land has been raped, this happens in so many cases. I mean, there are industrial properties around here where they've closed factories and such, and, you know, the soil won't hold anything there. It sets up floods. 
I know one of the things we did as we were populating the uh, pollinator garden as we went out to the family farm, and it's about an hour and a half from here in a remote area, very sparsely populated. We figured, well, we'll find lots of of, uh, native species plants. And I've had people say, well, why, you know, yeah, well, around the cities that may be, but you you know, there are thousands of acres of countryside. Yeah, that's right. But you know what? Invasive species have taken over. We spent, I don't remember how many hours we spent, but we found two native species plants on this whole farm property out of the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's a, I don't know what the town is in, uh, in Virginia here, uh, the population, a few hundred people. And uh, they're all invasive species plants. They just, that's the problem with invasive species. Is there's nothing, there's no predator. And they just spread and they spread and they spread. And they wipe out the native species. So if you say, well, you know, in the, in the wild there out west or, you know, in the Midwest or whatever, the thousands of acres, yeah, and the native species are gone. It's just, it's shocking. So backyard habitats, that's what's urgently needed. So think about that as part and parcel of your contribution to changing the world. NASA did a study when they and they uh, looked at how many square miles of lawns there are in America, and with their you know they did aerial studies, and they came up with approximately forty nine thousand square miles of lawn, and they estimate that that forty thousand forty nine thousand square miles of lawn consumes almost 8 billion gallons of increasingly scarce fresh water and costs about $30 billion a year annually. And it's a totally, you know, for most people, it's a totally toxic, you know, pastime. They don't think anything of spraying glyphosate. I know we confronted the, uh, the, um, spraying truck here we we looked out one morning we heard this truck's like whoa what's that and there's a tanker going around spraying the edges of everybody's property with glyphosate i mean there are millions of dollars in in uh, awards being given for cancer survivors and cancer deaths due to glyphosate and they still carry it at walmart Suggestion, go into your Walmart store and say, what the hell are you doing with this on your shelf? This kills people. Raise some noise. Bring up awareness. So lawns bring in billions of pounds of toxic pesticides, hormone interrupters, poisons, and that goes into the soil, the air, the water, the food, the bodies, and especially the vulnerable bodies of children. the animals, the insects. And there's a significantly disproportionate impact of this toxic loads on infants and children. Children are far more susceptible to these toxic chemicals than the adults in the same environment. And you look at the exploding numbers. 
Pardon me, sweetie. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's awesome to note, you know, Aria goes out and she picks a tomato and pops it in her mouth or picks a grape and pops it in her mouth. I mean, and she even goes through the herbs and she'll pull a basil leaf and then she'll pull an oregano leaf or whatever. And she tests them whether she likes them or not or mint or stevia or whatever. And we know it's safe for her to do that. Most family farms today, well, perhaps not the family farms, but commercial farms, you can't put a child on those fields. And if you're going to work in those fields, you know, especially around spraying time, you've got to be fully garbed with with protective equipment. And that's what's being fed to people. Like, you know, just think about that one. Think about that field where your food was picked that you're going to eat this afternoon. And three months ago, the person who was setting that up for those plants to be planted had to be fully covered from head to foot with protective gear and and breathing protection in order to work to produce that so-called food. And... There's no telling. We look at the exploding numbers as far as children's diseases go. And, you know, right up to, you know, in 2020, more women in America died in childbirth than in any year in American history. How many preventable diseases are taking children and parents at early ages? But, hey, if you're making trillions of dollars, you know, I mean, we have our scientists, don't you know? And and we checked, and we don't know why there's so much autism. We don't understand why there's all this cancer. Our experts looked, we don't know why there's heart. Certainly our pesticides have not. No, we don't know why there's so many suicides, asthma, emphysema, ADHD, miscarriages, Alzheimer's, dementia, violence, maternal. No, we don't know why. We don't know why life, for the first time in American history, lifespan is shortening, and we need to wake up. Of course, those people will tell you, and there's a certain political attitude that says, well, you know, we'll just self-regulate, no problem. You can just get rid of those. You know, regulations are inefficient, and they, they, they just, you know, make prices go up and everything. You don't need to regulate us. We'll take care of that stuff for you. We'll self-regulate. You don't need the EPA. Notice what's happened to the EPA in the last six years. It's coming back to some degree, but just take a look. The people who are making billions from this, the billionaires, it's time for people to speak up. And one of the most powerful ways to speak up is to vote. Really take a look. And if you don't have someone who's there supporting decent food, then you don't have someone that's worth voting for. So it's all time for a wake-up call. And so today is a wake-up call. And we appreciate everybody who joins us and participates. And if there's any way we can support you, that's the purpose of this show. If it's made sense to you and you think somebody else might be interested, when the show is over, you can go to our website, whyagain.org, and click on the 
microphone. Drill down, you'll find a link to this show, an MP3. You can download or you can listen to or you can send a link to somebody. Support us, put it out there. In the meantime, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye.